You know, some of the ugliest family squabbles occur fighting over someone's inheritance or the estate when someone passes on in the family. And it can be really ugly and really revealing of what, uh, what's in our hearts. As a financial planner, I um, used to, one of my main jobs was to help people think about the future and help them to say, look, I don't care if you don't, if you don't have a huge estate, you still need to have a plan of laid out of who you want to get your estate, give as much detail as you can to keep families from fighting and squabbling over those type of things. Uh, in the, the case of the New York heiress, her name is Huguette Clark. She has an estate of over $300 million. There's a nasty uh, quarrel going on because uh, some long-lost uh, cousins and people who were not real close to her uh, are, are upset and fighting for the estate because she gave basically all of the estate. Uh, a significant portion of it went to the chief nurse who cared for her in the last 10 years of her life. Uh, she went to the hospital to be, she lived to be over 100, but she went to the hospital late in her life, I guess about 90-something years old, and she was treated and, and released to go, but she said she wanted to stay there. So she lived the rest of her days over a decade uh, in the care of those people, and those were the people she wanted to bless as they had blessed her. And so she left it all in her will to that chief nurse. Everyone's going into nursing now. Uh, but, uh, to that chief nurse, and then the vast majority of it to the hospital, uh, a little bit to the doctors. But uh, the family is causing uh, problems and taking it to court because there was a will that was three uh, weeks dated, three weeks prior to her final will. And the, the will three weeks prior to her final will gave everything to the family that she didn't know. And so they are saying we want that's what should have happened and someone has persuaded her otherwise. But we know that the way the will works is the last one in place is the one that is in effect and it has been ratified upon her death and can't be changed. We also see the case of James Brown. Um, he has supposedly an estate that could be up to $100 million and he chose with his money to give about $2 million to a trust where that would provide for the education of grandkids and their kids. But then he gave the rest of it, everything, which could have been very significant, to a trust that would pay for the education of the poor in the, uh, in the city. And his heirs are uh, very upset about that, and partly because that someone who was handling the funds also was... They, they charged that he was mishandling it, and sure enough, he's now in prison. And so they were very upset. But the point is, the judge, first judge made a settlement that said, here's what I recommend be done. Let's, let's readjust the, the estate to give more to the family. And it had to be given to a higher court's approval. The higher chief justice said, no, the, the, the solution, the settlement that you've come up with does not represent the last wishes of this person. And this would just totally ruin the system if we change the will after it's been promised. It's been ratified at death. It can't be changed. You say, well, that's nice. Thanks for sharing that. Uh, you're no longer a certified financial planner. Move on. You know, No, it's because that's where Paul goes with this material. Imagine if I could tell you Warren Buffett and the Bill Gates have put their estate together. 
And I know how you can be an heir to receive that estate. I would have your attention. You would have my attention. You're not bad. I, I'm, I, if you're bad, I'm right there with you, okay? <laughs> Paul says the eternal kingdom of eternal righteousness can be yours. You can become an heir to the kingdom of righteousness. And he's speaking about it in terms of inheritance in chapter 3 of Galatians, verses 15 through 25. He uses these terms, and he's using these because basically he's trying to settle a family squabble over the eternal kingdom of God. Who will inherit the righteousness of God? Now see, God's people, the physical descendants of Abraham, Israel, the Jews, said, well, we are going to inherit it because of the covenant that God made with Moses. He gave us these laws that formed us into His people, and that's why we, have the, we are the people of God, the children of God, which will receive God's inheritance as His children. And Paul says, no, 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 you got it all wrong. Because they, they were saying to Gentiles, non-Jews, okay, you can be a part, you can be an heir, you can receive the kingdom of God, but you do that by becoming a Jew. You do that by becoming a child of God, by becoming a Jew. You get circumcised, maintain the dietary laws, eat kosher food, honor the Sabbath, and keep these laws of Moses. Because that's who we are. That's what makes us children of God, and therefore the rightful heirs of His estate. Of eternal righteousness. Paul says no. And he explains three things. First of all, he keeps going past in history, past the Mosaic law, to the promise God made Abraham. He says, here's where your mistake is. First of all, he says, we're going to see, Paul explains the Mosaic law did not invalidate the will, if you will, did not invalidate the promise that God gave to Moses. You can't change it after the fact. That's what he's going to say first. The second, he's going to say the Mosaic law, when you look at it, it should be self-evident. It's inferior to the promise. So we're going to see what that means. And then finally, he explains how the Mosaic law actually did serve the purpose of the promise. It didn't replace it. It served to promote the promise that God made Abraham. So let's look at the text in Galatians 3, 15 through 25, and we'll break it down into those three parts. First of all, he says, Brethren, I speak to you in human relations, even though it's only a man's covenant, and that's the same word for will, so we can say, even though it's only a man's will, yet when it has been ratified, no one sets it aside or adds conditions to it. Now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say unto seeds, as referring to many, but rather to one, and to your seed, that is, Christ. What I'm saying is this, the law which came 430 years later does not invalidate a covenant previously ratified by God so as to nullify the promise. For if the inheritance is based on law, it is no longer based on promise. But God has granted to Abraham by means of a promise. Well, why the law then? Well, it was added because of transgressions having been ordained through angels by the agency of a mediator until the seed would come to whom the promise had been made. Now, mediator is not for one party only, whereas God is only one. Well, is the law then contrary to the promises of God? 
Well, may it never be, for if the law, for if a law had been given which was able to impart life, then righteousness would indeed have been based on the law. But the scripture has shut up everyone under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. But before faith came, we were kept in custody under the law, being shut up to the faith which was later to be revealed. Therefore, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we're no longer under a tutor. Lord, please help us to see the importance of this information that we would pay careful attention. That we may not fall into the same trap that these Jews fell into. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right, so first of all, the law does not nullify the promise. Like I said, he uses this idea of a last will and testament. Here it's translated covenant in verse 15. He says, I speak in human terms of the idea of a... He says, even though it's only a man's covenant or a will, when it's been ratified by death, no one sets it aside or adds conditions to it. So Paul is saying... Let's go back to the promise or the last will and testament, if you will. He's using an analogy to say this promise that God made Abraham is like a will and testament that we as humans know. And when that will has been ratified upon the the death of the one who wrote the will, nobody can come by later and change it no matter how badly they want to change it. He says, Think about the will and testament. That's how we should think about this Abrahamic promise or covenant. And then he clarifies this promise that he made, that God made to Abraham. We can read more about that in Genesis 12. But look at verse 16. He says, Now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say seeds as referring to many, but rather to one and to your seed. And then he identifies that seed as Christ. Here, in his promise to Abraham in Genesis, Paul is explaining that God made a promise to pass his internal, eternal righteous estate down through Abraham to Abraham's seed. So where is the estate? Where is the righteousness of God? Who owns it rightfully? It's You've got to follow the will. And the will said... God's righteousness, his estate, goes through Abraham into Abraham's seed. So we got one question. If we want to be up in that inheritance, where's the seed? Right? And that's what the Bible's all about. That's the story of the Bible. You want in the inheritance? You got to get in with the seed. And Paul tells you, it's Christ. Jesus is the promised son, capital S, the overarching son of Abraham, the son of God. He's the rightful heir of the righteous estate of all the spiritual blessings that are in the heavenly places. That estate has been inherited by Christ. And so he, he's making that point very clear using this analogy of the will and the inheritance. Then in verse 17, Paul explains... What the obvious question anyone would be asking is, well, does this then, how does the law relate to the promise? He says in verse 17, what I'm saying is this, the law which came 430 
years later, it does not invalidate or nullify this promise that has been previously ratified by God so as to nullify the promise, he says in verse 17. Then verse 18, 4. If the inheritance is based on the law, it's no longer based on the promise. But God has granted to Abraham by means of a promise. So his point is this. Look, it's either inherited by the will of a promise that the will makes, or you change it. Those are mutually exclusive. You can't have it both ways. There are not two options here. You don't get the estate by some performance after the the testator has died. You only have one hope, and that's that it's passed based on that person's promise in their will. So the 430 years later, when God gave Moses this law to give to the people, he says, that did not invalidate the promise. So quit, Israel, looking to this law as your hope of receiving the inheritance of righteousness. It's been based on the promise from all the time, and when 430 years later, when he gave you the law, that was not to nullify that promise. And so then the obvious question with a bunch of Israelites going, oh, well then, why did we get the law? I mean, isn't that the the obvious question? Well, then why the law then? Why, if it's all about the promise of God, then why did 430 years later, after Abraham, did Moses get this massive, massive, important law that is all over your scriptures? Why the law then? And that's what he asks, and that's what he answers in verse 19. Why the law then? And then he begins to explain, but in his explanation we see the inferiority of the law. The law is inferior. He says, it was added because of transgressions. Having been ordained through angels by the agency of a mediator, that's Moses the mediator, until the seed would come, so it's temporary, to whom the promise had been made. Now, a mediator is not for one party only, whereas God is only one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? No, may it never be. For if a law had been given which was able to impart life, then righteousness would indeed have been based on the law. So let's look at four things he says here about how the law is inferior and why the law was given in these verses. To understand this, we need to go back again and continue the story of what was going on. So remember, a long time ago, God made a promise to Abraham. My righteousness is going to be passed on as you line yourself with my heirs. Abraham is my heir because he's got faith and his seed will be the seed, will be the son of Abraham, will be the son of God. And if you want my righteousness, you have to get it through him. And then 430 years later, Israelites, all of Abraham's children, the physical descendants of Abraham, are in Egypt being oppressed, and God delivers them through Moses. He says, come on, get my people out of there. They cross the Red Sea, and they're at the foot of the mountain, and God comes to them. Listen very carefully. God comes to all of them. And says, come to the mountain. Remember his fire, his his holy fiery presence is on the mountain. And he calls them, come to me. 
And what do they say? Oh, no, 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 no. I'm not going over there. I know I'm not holy, and I don't want to face the fire. Hey, let's send Moses. He's been the one leading us all the time. So they ask for a mediator, and they send Moses up the mountain. So the law that then God gives them does not go directly to them. Abraham's promise came directly from God. The law came through this mediator, Moses. Now why? Because of sin. Because their sin, they knew they needed a mediator. And so Moses is up there getting what? The Ten Commandments? Ten principles of justice for this society of people to live by? And what's the heart of it vertically? Have no other gods before me and don't create idols. And while God's giving that to them, what's the priest Aaron down at the mountain doing? Oh, yeah, that looks good. He's whipping up a calf, a golden idol, a calf. And so then we see the shattering of the commands and return back up, and we see a pouring on of laws in your book of Leviticus. The first portion of Leviticus is laws to whom? To guide whose life? The priest. The priest sinned. You need more instructions. Regulation, 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 regulation. That when you read it, you're going, oh, what in the world is this here for? And then we see this strange little goat sacrifice out in the people are sacrificing a goat. And then after that, we see regulations and regulations for whom? For the people. The people send more regulations. So why the Mosaic Law? If it doesn't earn us righteousness, if righteousness is based on an inheritance, based on the promise made to Abraham, then why do we have the law? He says, because of your sin. You need the law. It's not going to make you have life. And then he explains those four weaknesses or four inferiorities of the, the law. Number one, it's a temporary measure. It was only temporary It wasn't to to bring life. It was only temporary until the seed, Christ, would come. And that's why we no longer live under the law, because Christ came and that Mosaic law is done. It's been fulfilled. We don't need it anymore. So number one, the Mosaic law was temporary. Number two, it was given through a mediator. It went through man, Moses. Abraham went straight. God went straight to Abraham and made the promise that we can count on. But in the law, God went through a mediator, through Moses. So it's, it's uh, inferior to the promise. Number three, it was not the original plan. It was given for sin. It was a result of your sin that God gave uh, Jews the law. And then number four, it was never able to impart life because of their unbelieving hearts. They were never able to to use the law to impart life. And that's why it's not contradictory to the promise. Because he says, if it was able to impart life, then yeah, there had been a problem. But it was never, never able to impart life because you can't keep the law. And so there's no conflict here. It was just a blessing to preserve sinful people. So the law was inferior to the promise. So first of all, the law does not nullify the promise the Mosaic Law is, not in, is inferior to the promise. And finally, we see the law actually serves to support 
the promise. In verse 21, he says, Is the law contrary to the promises of God? No. In verse 22, he says, But the Scripture has shut everyone up under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. But before faith came, we were kept in custody under the law, being shut up to the faith, which was later to be revealed. And finally, he says, Therefore the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. Now that faith has come, we're no longer under that tutor. So he gives us three ways the law, instead of being contrary to the promise, actually serves the the purpose of that promise. He says, first of all, the law demonstrates your desperate need for faith. Anyone who sets out to try to justify themselves to open their mouth and say, well, let me tell you how good I've kept the law. It says the Scriptures shuts them up. We've talked about this before, that we can think we're self-righteous and can justify our actions as long as we're comparing ourselves to others who are worse than us. But when we look squarely into the demands of Scripture, and when the Jews really were honest with integrity about what the law demanded of them, they would have to say, I can't do it. And so, in that case, it's a great blessing to say, look into the mirror of the law and admit you desperately need the inheritance which is received by faith and not by your ability to keep the law. Secondly, he says, the law is a blessing and supports the promise rather than contradicting it because it also has been a custody. It's been your custodian. It's helped you, kept you in custody in verse 23. What is a custodian when you... Think in human terms again, a custodian is one who oversees a minor who can't take care of themselves. This person needs someone to protect them and, and provide for them and guide them and keep them safe and keep them from harming themselves. A custodian cares after and protects the minor. That's what the law did for Israel. The law said, here, do not kill one another. Do not worship foreign gods. Do not steal. Do not destroy. Do not covet. It was a blessing. It kept them from destroying themselves. In fact, the way the scriptures, the way the scriptures reveal the story is there's this mass of people that are just coming in at the foot of the mountain. And then you see they're given God's laws. And then what do you see leaving the mountain? An orderly people who have been placed in a just order society. Very much like our laws and and our country do for us. They protect and they keep us safe. That's what one benefit of the law was. He says these aren't contradictory to God's promise to you. In fact, they were your custodian. If you were left and given over to your own ways, it would have been nothing but devastation and destruction and despair. It had been awful. So thank God for the the law. So not only does it reveal our need for faith, shutting up every one of us under sin, it also kept them in custody. And finally, the law served to be their tutor. The word tutor carries the idea of helping someone understand something. And in the 
biblical word. It, it carries also the idea of disciplining and, and teaching and instructing and raising one up to the goal of complete understanding. So how was the law the tutor to Christ? Well, ceremonial laws made it very clear. I am sinful. I'm slaughtering this lamb. The blood is necessary to atone for my sins. And that should have been done with this mindset. A faithful Israelite should have looked upon the blood and said, I am so thankful that there will be a Messiah who will come and finally be sacrificed and take away, like we said last week, absorb the wrath of God. But instead, they were saying, aren't I doing good with this sacrifice to earn righteousness? And that's an abuse of the law. The law also had moral code of do not kill, be honest. And that is a picture of the moral perfection of Christ who came. And so all the law, everything in it is a shadow of the reality. When you hold an object up into the light, it casts a shadow. The shadow is not the real object. It's just a shadow of it. Christ is the reality, and the law was a shadow of the reality. And when he came, he said, I fulfill the law. The tabernacle was a shadow of the presence of God, the dwelling place of God. The priest was a shadow of the great high priest who entered into the Holy of Holies. The lamb was a shadow of Christ who gave himself the unblemished, spotless lamb sacrificed on the altar. And when you read the scriptures, how can you not believe? Put your faith in the one who is the reality, who's the Son of God. It's an amazing picture of the Scriptures, written by authors of all ages throughout generations, and the one coherent story is clear. Trust in the Son of God. His name is Jesus Christ. He died on the cross for your sins. So the point of Galatians is clear. Don't Believe the false teachers that are teaching the Mosaic law makes you a son of Abraham and an heir of his righteous estate. And you say, thank you, pastor, for that seminary lesson. I now have right thinking. And I say, oh, we didn't go far enough if that's as far as we go. We're not here for information alone. We're here for transformation. And so what does that have to do with you sitting in your chair right now. It says to us, and we'll focus on what, it, what we shouldn't do to this week, and next week we'll focus on the positives of what it does mean. It says to us, do not make the same mistake they were making. What was their mistake? They were trusting in a great gift that God gave them, the Mosaic Law. And they thought that that Mosaic law, which was a blessing, was the means of becoming a child of God. Now, how do we make that same mistake? We take this and the commands of Scripture, which are a tremendous blessing. They are our tutor to Christ. They are our custodian that keep us from self-destroying ourselves. And they reveal to us very clearly our need for faith. 
but they should not be turned into a means of that's how I become a child of God. You do not become a child of God and inherit his righteous estate by going to church, by memorizing scriptures, by sharing the gospel, by giving to the poor, by being a good person, by being nice to others. That does not make you a child of God. The clear point has been made. How do you become a child of God and inherit the righteousness? Faith in Abraham's child, Jesus Christ. Once you become a child of God and you are in good standing with the Father based on faith, you've inherited all the spiritual blessings of the heavenly places. The Holy Spirit of God is the one bringing that to you. He takes residence in you. And what does He do? He causes you to internalize all those things. The law is not out there anymore. It's not written on commands out there on stone tablets. It's in you. It changes you. It transforms you into someone as a child of God who longs to go to church, who longs to obey the Lord, who longs to know His Scriptures, who longs to give to the poor, who longs to share this wonderful message. You too can be an heir of King Jesus. It doesn't make you children of God. It's what children of God do automatically. That's a radically different message. Instead of going out and singing praises to yourself and your ability to be a good, cleaned up person, you go out and sing praises to a God who adopted you despite your mess that you've made of your life. Isn't that wonderful? What a great message. It is good news. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for that good news. Help us not to turn your wonderful word of God, the commands and the prohibitions in your scriptures that are a tremendous blessing to us. They order our lives. They tell us how to live. They preserve us from destruction. They tutor us, pointing us every day. Trust in Christ. Trust in Christ. Be an heir to the kingdom. But they don't make us children of God. That only happens by faith in the Son of God, Jesus Christ. Faith knowing that he died on the cross to absorb the wrath of God that I deserve and that everyone in this room and everyone on the planet deserves for their sin. Faith to know that the sin and the rightful judgment of God has been absorbed on my behalf when I trust in Jesus. And then I'm adopted As we'll see next week, I'm filled with the Spirit of God. I become an heir to the throne. And everyone, Jew or Gentile, rich or poor, white or black, American, Russian, it doesn't matter. Every single one of us 
become brothers and sisters in our one Father, the Son of God. May we share that good news from neighbors to nations. May we take this glorious message out to the neighborhoods around us, wherever we live. May we be passionate, salt and light, bringing that good news. May it so define who we are that we are transformed and take this gospel message from neighbors to nations. And it's all for your glory because you are glorious and loving. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.